0: in your Bibles to Ezra, the book of Ezra. I don't know, it's towards the front, not quite to the middle, far, far from the end. Page 464 in my Bible, which is not your Bible. You can Google it. Ezra chapter 1. I'm not going to read all of Ezra 1 and 2. I know a lot of you are here simply to hear me read Ezra 2. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to skip over most of of Ezra 2. But listen to Ezra beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rechum, and Bana. And then all the way in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64, after a record of all the Israelites who came back to Jerusalem, we read in verse 64: the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers, their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families... when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God, to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 arachs of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and a 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. All right, if you are younger than 12, raise your hand if you know who Dorothy is in The Wizard of Oz. If you're younger than 12, younger than 12, Wesley. If you're younger than 12, all right, see a few hands. Younger than 12, you know Dorothy. It's a little scary. so you might not have seen the movie. And believe it or not, I think the book is a little scarier. Dorothy once made a statement that resonates with all of us. She said, there's no place like home. Even if your childhood was, uh, childhood home, was or is troubled, we all know what it's like to, to long for a place like home, a safe place filled with family and filled with joy. Now, Dorothy believed that the Wizard of Oz could magically take her home. And she soon discovered that the wizard was simply an old man behind a curtain. Pulling levers that made sound and light, he had no real power to defeat the wicked witch and transport Dorothy back home to Kansas. Now, for many, God is like that man behind the curtain, well-meaning and kind, but powerless. But scripture presents a much different account of God. The God of the Bible is all-powerful, all-wise, never flustered, and always ready and able to bring us home. Now, there is one similarity between the wizard and God. God is invisible. We don't see him at work. He is hidden from our eyes, as we've already sung this morning. He is hidden behind the curtain. But he is laboring for our good every day, not just behind the curtain, but in a sense, through the curtain, working in this world. And so in Ezra 1 and 2, what we find is a caring, sovereign, and surprising God at work for the good of the church. Now, before I unpack that main idea, I'd like to introduce you to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I say book because we should treat these two Old Testament books really as a single story. Both Ezra and Nehemiah report the return of the Israelites from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem, where they rebuilt the temple and the city wall. King Cyrus decreed their return in 539 B.C about 50 years after Jerusalem fell and about 70 years after the exile began. Now, Ezra shows up about 80 years later and Nehemiah 13 years after Ezra. So just to give you some perspective, the time between us and, say, Martin Luther or King Henry VIII is about the same time period as that between Jesus and Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, where do Ezra and Nehemiah fit into the events of the Old Testament? Well, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, a a, a people who would live in the land of Canaan, the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And those descendants of Abraham are Israel. Now, that promise was first realized centuries later under Joshua, who led the 12 tribes of Israel, again, those are Abraham's descendants, into the promised land. Jerusalem would eventually become the capital of that kingdom under David. Now, the high-water mark of Israel's history arrived under David's son, King Solomon. Solomon built the temple where sacrifices were made to God, and by virtue of those sacrifices, God would daily forgive the people of their sins. And this temple was called God's house because God promised to dwell with his people in Jerusalem because of the work of the temple. Now, sadly, for the next 400 years of Israel's history, with very few exceptions, Israel forgot God. Israel was like a man who wants his neighbor's lifestyle. Israel lived and worshiped the surrounding nations. And this led to civil war. It led to enemy attacks. It finally led to the exile of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. to Assyria and the exile of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. to Babylon. The southern kingdom consisted of just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, names we read in our passage today. Now, 47 years after the fall of Jerusalem, Cyrus, king of Persia, conquered Babylon. The Babylonian Empire effectively became the Persian Empire. Now, Cyrus instead of forcing his subjects to assimilate to his religion, Cyrus instead made space for his subjects to follow the gods of their kingdom. Now, for Israel, that meant letting them return to their land and rebuild their temple. How this happened and what they did is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now today, our attention is on Ezra 1 and 2. And from these two chapters, I want to share three truths about God. Here's truth number one. First, God cares for his people. God cares for his people. Ezra 1.11 really stands out to me as an unusually stunning verse in our passage. After years and years of being homeless, we see the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Right? This is a momentous turning point in Israel's history. I need you to try and to put yourself in the shoes of someone whose country had been crumbling for two centuries before finally being destroyed and you got to witness the destruction. In 722 B.C., Sennacherib of Assyria nearly invades your capital. In 605 B.C., your best and your brightest, including Daniel, are stolen from you and forced to live in Babylon. But in 586 B.C., the worst possible nightmare becomes reality. Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem. The walls are destroyed. The temple is burned. Thousands are killed. And the rest, including you, are chained and driven to Babylonia. And this is not simply a tragedy because you lost your family and your land. This is what we would call a tragedy of theological proportions. A tragedy involving God, because what all of this means is that you are in the bullseye of God's wrath. In the Old Testament book of Lamentations, your grief is put to words. In Lamentations chapter 1, we encounter the low-water mark of Israel's history. Lamentations 1, verse 10, we read, The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary." Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan. This is is Jerusalem. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised, despised by the Lord, hungry, without anything to eat. Right? This is a tragedy of theological proportions, the low watermark of Israel's history. And you're left wondering, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Are you going to despise me forever? Am I always going to be under your wrath? Am I ever going to return home? Do you even care? So my point is, you cannot begin to feel the joy of Ezra 111 unless you feel the pain of exile. It's one of the reasons why nearly every Sunday morning we're praying for persecuted Christians around the world. These are believers who, when they open up Ezra and they read verse 11, well, their hearts sing for joy because they're reminded of what their God can do, right? As our brothers and sisters in countries that prohibit them from gathering, that don't allow them to come together, at least not publicly, and sing God's praises, right? There are believers around the world who know something of exile, of being forced from their homes, of being booted from their churches. But if you can't understand that kind of suffering and persecution and exile, it makes Ezra 1.11 perhaps ring slightly hollow in our ears today. Under the hand of Cyrus, though, the people got to go home and rebuild the temple. Look at verse two. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Not only does Cyrus let the people go home, he gives back the temple equipment that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. Look at verse 7. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Cyrus was known for letting the peoples he conquered worship the way they wanted. Right? That was, that was the, the, the way Cyrus decided to, to unify the Persian Empire. Not by forcing everybody to worship his god, but by granting them the freedom to worship their gods. Now, what this meant for a lot of conquered nations was that Cyrus would effectively uh, take the idols of the peoples and put them back in the temples. Well, Israel, at least officially, didn't have any idols. So how did Cyrus remain faithful to his policy? Well, he took the bowls and all the vessels used for temple worship, he gathered them up, and he sent them back to the temple. Right? This was his policy of bringing, bringing peace to the empire. Now, as you read through the rest of Chapter 2, what you see are long lists of people. They are divided up by, by families, by villages, even by the roles they played in servicing the temple. I didn't read them for you this morning. Uh, I, I did read them myself this week. My family and I did read it last night. It's great fun and important to read these names. The priests are listed in verses 36 through 39. They oversaw the work of the temple. Uh, The Levites are listed in verses 40 to 42. Uh, All the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. Uh, Temple servants are listed in verses 43 to 54. They worked for the priests in the temple. So did Solomon's servants listed in verses 55 through 57. They provided labor for the most menial tasks associated with temple worship. Uh, There's even a record of those who returned to Israel but didn't have proof of their family history, verses 59 through 62. So they would not be permitted to do some of the most holy tasks associated with temple worship. So this long uh, list of names is a, a, a detailed record of the remnant of Israel who returned to the land of their fathers. And this list, chapter two, is really a, uh, a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Now, I know that had I read these names, your eyes would have glazed over. I know that. And this is simply because you're so far removed from the events that took place here. But the closer you get, the more these events and these names matter to you. Even today, if you were to go to D.C., and visit the Vietnam Memorial and, and stop and look at the names. You'd be some people looking at those names only briefly, and then they'd you know, walk on to you know see Lincoln. But there would be others who would stop and linger over those names for minutes, uh, perhaps even hours. And those who linger, those who care to read those names, are probably those who lost friends or family in Vietnam. The same is true with New York's 9-11 Memorial. There's nothing boring about that list for those of us who lived when the Twin Towers came crashing down. Even if we don't know the people whose names are on those lists, we know that that list is a window into a tragedy that we'll never forget. They remind us that life is fragile. But Chapter 2 is a list of the peoples who survived the exile. And they remind us that God is faithful. This list is evidence. It's proof that God cares for his people. He heard their cries and once again, he brought them home. Now, why do I say once again, he brought them home? Because this is not the first time that God brought his people up out of captivity and brought them into the promised land so Uh, Let's take a trip. If you can, keep a, a finger or a hand in Ezra. Let's go left in our Bible, just a few books, to Exodus chapter 3, because it's important that we see something together. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The people of Israel are under the yoke of Pharaoh when God appears to Moses. Verse 7. Then the Lord said... the Jebusites being the original residents of Jerusalem. God hears their cry from Egypt. Years later, God hears their cry from Babylon, and he came again. Exodus chapter 12, verse 35. They don't leave Egypt empty-handed. Exodus chapter 12, verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, interestingly, back in Ezra chapter 1, verse 6, we find something similar. Isn't it interesting that the Israelites didn't leave Babylonia empty handed? God gave them the wealth of their neighbors. Ezra, chapter 1, verse 6, and all who were about them, right? All All the people in Babylonia, all their neighbors, all who were about them, aided them with vessels of silver. With gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Look at Ezra chapter 2 verse 68, Ezra 2 verse 68. As the Israelites come back from Babylonia, another thing that they do is they set aside some of their own money for the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra 268. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now, this is exactly what happened when Israel left Egypt. Same exact thing. In Exodus 35, we read how Moses encouraged the people to give generously for the, the building of the house of God, the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, which would eventually be the temple. Look at Ezra chapter 2, verse 2, Ezra 2, verse 2. There are 11 names in that list, 11 names. Now, if you add the the prince of Judah in verse 8, Sheshbazar, who was himself Jewish and the governor of Judah, that makes 12. Twelve leaders as the people come back into the land. Just as God brought 12 tribes out of Egypt to populate the promised land, so now 12 leaders are bringing the people of Israel home again. This is no coincidence. All of that is a long description, but this is no coincidence. No, this is a new Exodus. It's a second exodus. It, it's proof positive that God hasn't changed, that he's not forgotten his people, that he's not forgotten his promises. He is at work again. God cares for his people. Now, Aaron, that was a great history lesson. Man, you should be like a high school history teacher. That was really great. Not so sure you should preach. History, thumbs up. Right? Some of you are thinking now. What could this possibly have to do with me? Well, this time, I want you to turn in your New Testament to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. You can keep Ezra, but turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Hebrews was written to Christians, men and women struggling to persevere. They were tempted to give up. And this whole book of Hebrews was written to encourage them to stay at it to follow Jesus, to not give up, to not turn back. Like the exiles who left Egypt and Babylon, these Christians are encouraged, oddly enough, to be generous. But notice why. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does anyone know where he said, where God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? He said it to Joshua at the end of the first exodus, when Joshua finally led the 12 tribes into the promised land. That's when God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, the God of the first exodus out of Egypt is the God of the second exodus out of Babylon, and he is the God of the final exodus, our exodus out of sin and death. He is the same God, we are his people, and that's why the Christian author of Hebrews can take the ancient first exodus words to Joshua and apply them to believers today. So, dear Christian, the same God who saved Israel saved you. He's led you out of a kingdom far worse than that of Egypt or Babylon. He's led you out of the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom there is forgiveness, the redemption of sins. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse six. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right, that's our God. He has always, he does now. And he will always help and care for his people. Christian, like the Israelites, you should expect lengthy seasons of exile. Even in your short life, you should expect moments, months, perhaps even years of lamentation, like we read a few minutes ago. You should expect there to be times in your life where God seems far from you, but in light of all of this, in light of the first exodus, in light of the second exodus, in light of the third exodus, never conclude God has forsaken you. Always believe that in Christ, because of Christ, Hebrews thirteen six is true for you. The Lord is your helper. You need not fear. What can man do to you? These seasons of spiritual exile in our lives today can seem very long, and perhaps you're in one now. And so my counsel to you, based upon all of this, is to be patient. This world is not your home. We're never promised a trouble-free life. Joy comes in the morning. So don't give up. Remember, God cares for you. That was the first point. Here's the second point God holds history in His hand. God holds history in His hand. We talked about Dorothy. Let's talk about a real girl right now, Corey Tenboom. Uh, Corey Tenboom tells a story of uh, her family, her Christian family, which uh, helped both hide and, 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 and help Jews escape the Nazis in World War II. And it's a remarkable story, The Hiding Place. You should read it. Well, Corey Tenman was uh, a little girl, and she was struggling with the horrors of World War II, as, as any Christian, even today, struggles with the reality of that kind of horror and evil. One day, Corey is on a train, and she's with her dad. And her dad, of course, uh, a believer, is the one who really risked everything to save so many Jews leaving the Nazis, fleeing Germany. Corey is on the train, and she asks her dad to help explain to her just where is God in all this? How is God, you know, at work in the midst of the horror of World War II? And her dad basically doesn't, answer the question. Instead, he asks Corey a question. He says to her, Corey, something like this. He says, Corey, uh, can you lift that heavy suitcase over your head and put it in the overhead compartment on on the train? And Corey says, well, Dad, you know, uh, of course I, I can't do that. It's too big and it's too heavy for me. And her dad says, Corey, some questions and some answers are a lot like that heavy suitcase. You're never going to get the hands of your mind around the answer until you're older and until you're stronger. And in one sense, I'm telling this story to you because Ezra 1-1 is a little bit like a heavy suitcase. Not all of us at every moment in our lives are able to get uh, the hands of our mind around it, lifted it up over our heads so that we can control the answer, right? Some problems in the Bible are too difficult for us to tackle. We're going to make an attempt to do it right now, but even before I do that, I want you to remember Cory and her suitcase, Ezra 1-1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. All right, so Cyrus issued an executive order to return the Israelites and rebuild the temple. And Cyrus made that decision freely. He made it willingly. Cyrus did what he wanted to do. I already mentioned the basic policy of the Persian Empire under Cyrus to to work with conquered nations this way. However, Ezra 1-1 is unusually clear. It was God at work in Cyrus. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. In other words, God directed the actions of. God directed the heart of the king of Persia. Now, this kind of language is, is, is very common in the Old Testament. If you read your Old Testament, you're going to come across it an awful lot. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would not at least immediately, release the Israelites from Egypt. Exodus 7. We read that God stirred up the Assyrians against Israel in 1 Chronicles 5. We learn that God stirred up the Philistines against Israel in 2 Chronicles 26. God even stirred the heart of his own people. We see in Ezra 1.5 that apparently there were some Israelites who had grown so comfortable in Babylon, it appears they didn't want to go, but that's okay because God stirred up their heart so that they went anyway. Ezra 1.5, God changes human hearts in order to accomplish divine goals. Now, when I say that God holds history in his hand, I mean God is sovereign over the human heart so that his plans are brought to fruition through our actions. His plans brought to fruition through our actions because God is sovereign over the human heart. Look again at Ezra 1.1. God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus in order to keep the promise he made through the word of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29 was written long before the events of Ezra. The prophet Jeremiah predicted Uh, not just that the exile would end, the prophet Jeremiah predicted actually when it would end. You can turn right to Jeremiah chapter 29 and look at verse 10. Again, where we see what God's design is. Cyrus is going to be the one to make this happen, but this is God's design. Jeremiah 29 verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places Rive driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Cyrus becomes the means of accomplishing what God promised he would do after 70 years in Jeremiah 29. So when I say in the title of the sermon that God works through the curtain, this is what I mean. We see Cyrus with our own eyes, but God is working invisibly. God is working secretly through Cyrus for our good and ultimately for God's glory. Throughout the Bible, we find this pattern at play. We find God working through the curtain to accomplish his good goals. Let me list off a few examples. God worked through Satan to test Job so that through Job's patience we might better believe that God is to be trusted and blessed all the time, no matter what he gives and no matter what he takes away. God worked through Joseph's brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, into Egypt, because it was from Egypt that Joseph would one day be able to save his entire family from famine. God worked through Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to punish Israel for generations of rebellion in order to teach generations to follow that God is just and he will not tolerate sin. God worked through Cyrus in our passage to prove that God has neither left nor forsaken his people, even if the season of trial is long. Let me go back to the Bible for another example. God worked through Herod and Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus Christ so that we could have everlasting life. Luke tells us explicitly in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, that when Herod and Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to the cross, they were simply doing what God's hand and God's plan had predestined take place. You see, God is sovereign over the human heart. He holds history in his hand. And this teaching is a heavy suitcase. It's nearly impossible to lift it up over our heads. But we're not God not sovereign over the human heart, which is to say we're God not holding history in his hand, we would have no guarantee of salvation. We have no guarantee that human history will end with a win for God. But because God can and does overcome even the hardest of human hearts, we can trust history is safely, not just under God's supervision, but the outcome will take place exactly according to God's perfect plan. Let me give you an example. Many of you were here a couple of sunny nights ago when uh, I talked about, uh, I'm going to, for the sake of the morning and the live stream, I'm going to call him John. But I told you about John who left China and came to Atlanta to go to Georgia Tech. And when John came to Georgia Tech, uh, what do you know, but he met a young Christian man from Thailand who just happens to be a member of Mount Vernon a uh, young man by the name of Tao and as Tao does uh, Tao proceeded to repeatedly share the gospel with John week after week month after month John however never coming to saving faith well John went back to China Tao kept talking to John but it was in China that it appears God saved John because God is not just in Georgia, contrary to popular belief. God is in China. And so God saved John in China. But then John moved to Hong Kong, and I think because God saved John in part through a young man from Thailand who has a love for the local church and encouraged John wherever he was to find a local church. John, in Hong Kong, looked for a church and found a pastor who would disciple him by carefully working through the gospel of John that he might grow in his faith and his conversion might not prove to be fraudulent or unreal or nominal. Well, little did John or Tao know that it just so happens that the pastor in Hong Kong was an age-old ministry friend of mine who, not knowing Tao or John, sent me an email telling me about a young man from Georgia Tech who'd recently come to know the Lord and was now being discipled in Hong Kong. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. And he is at work in remarkable ways in situations that we would never be able to orchestrate if we had greater minds or all the powers of the computers on the planet. We could not orchestrate something as simple as all the events that took place to bring John to know the Lord. History is in God's hand, not our hand. What does this mean for you? Have a biblical view of God. I was tempted to say, have a big view of God. But if you have a biblical view of God, you will have a big view of God. So have a biblical view of God. Ezra 1.1 teaches a biblical view of God is a big view of God. God is in control. I cannot be sure what I'll do tomorrow. I can make plans, but God will do what he wills. Proverbs 16.9. The heart of the man plans his own way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right, that's Ezra 1.1. And what's true for Cyrus is true for you. So Christian, listen, God has numbered your days aright. God guides your path and is at work in the smallest details of your life to ensure that all things work together for your good. He can only do this if he does in fact hold history in his hand and is in fact sovereign even over the hearts of men. You know, my friend in Hong Kong was booted out of China. He was there to give his life, to proclaim the gospel in China. But maybe God wanted him in Hong Kong to disciple this Chinese believer in the faith. To have a biblical view of God is to realize God's ways are not always our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His capabilities far exceed our own. And somehow he can take us by the hand and lead us down the right path without sacrificing the genuine responsibility that we have as individuals made in his image and likeness to make wise and right and informed decisions. It's a heavy suitcase. God can lift it. Have a biblical view of God. And before I move on, find peace in God who works through the curtain. It is so easy to feel anxious when life doesn't go your way, right? When kids rebel, when friends disappoint, when bosses berate, when money runs out, when cancer returns, when depression looms, when dreams go unfulfilled, when all of this happens, so easy, so easy to grow bitter, forlorn, fall into the pit of despair, the slew of despondency. What should you do? There is a peace in knowing God works through the curtain. Whether you are in Babylon or Jerusalem, there is peace in knowing you're not forgotten. There's peace in knowing God raises up kings to lead you home. There's peace in knowing God doesn't just sort of care about you in the abstract. No, he is at work, not in spite of the details of your life, but in the details of your life for a good that you probably can't even begin to comprehend. The God who did not spare his own son, will he not with him graciously give you all things? Romans 8, 32. God worked through the curtain of Herod and Pontius Pilate to save you. Christian, you have peace with God. Now find peace by leaning into him as the one who holds history in his hand. Now, I know that some of you aren't Christian. And so all the things that I'm saying right now about leaning into God and trusting him and the peace you can have in him, that's not for you unless God is your God, unless you've actually done, humanly speaking, the most difficult thing on the face of the planet and submit your life to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to end the sermon by, by showing you why it's so clear to me that you ought to do that and how all of Scripture is basically there to drive you to see it's all about Christ, all right? So that's our third point. God provides a surprising king. Now, if you're anything like me and you come to Ezra and Nehemiah, you're a little worried about having to maybe read all the names aloud, so you just decide not to do that. But you're also a little taken back by Ezra 1-1, all right? And, And here's the thing. Uh, I knew before going into the sermon that God can do anything. So I met that heavy suitcase a long time ago. I'm comfortable with not being able to entirely lift it up over my head. I was there a long time ago. What is confusing to me is, why Cyrus? Why him? I know God can use Cyrus. But what really racked my brain is, why would God use Cyrus? It doesn't make any sense to me that God would use Cyrus to save Israel. Why him? I mean, there's so many other better saviors in scripture. I know they're all sinful, right? But you got Noah, what a man, like built that ark, everybody making fun of him for so long. I mean, I totally get Noah. Abraham, you know, did amazing things. Again, sinful man. But wow, believing God would raise up his son from the dead. Maybe you know the story. Yeah, Joseph fled Potiphar's wife. I mean, praise God for Joseph. What an example. Moses climbing the mountain, Joshua leading the army, David crushing the Philistines, Solomon. He wrote a lot of great Proverbs. I mean, these are amazing people. They all had their flaws, I know, really bad ones. But at least by the end of their life, all following the Lord. Then when I come to Ezra 1, I think, I know God can use Cyrus. I'm just not sure why. Now, at this point, you need to recognize God doesn't have to tell you why. Just because you have a why question when you read the Bible, don't expect that the answer is always there, okay? Just you'll find out later when you probably don't care about the answer. But I do think in this case that there is an answer. And I think the answer is in 2 Chronicles, just one page to the left. You see, First and 2 Chronicles are two long books that record in a very condensed fashion the history of Israel. And with very few exceptions, these books, which record the kings of Israel, are recording the lives of men who were really not worth recording. Men hardly worth the ink on the scrolls on which their lives are remembered. These kings, with very few exceptions, were disasters. They rejected God and they oppressed his people. Zedekiah was the last of the kings. The summary of his reign is a, basically it's a recap of the lives of most of Israel's kings. Second Chronicles 36, verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Um, brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, let that not be an appropriate sentence for our tombstone. I recognize we are all sinners, but at the end of our lives, may it not be written of us. By the grace of God, let's do what is good and righteous in the sight of the Lord our God. But Zedekiah did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Now, sadly, the people followed Zedekiah and all the wicked kings before him. Verse 15 of 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. So God is sending them prophets and on his dwelling place. But they, the people, kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So despicable people, despicable kings, Their punishment is summarized in verses 17 through 21. Nebuchadnezzar came, he saw, he conquered. Jerusalem is no more. All right. Roughly 50 years later, what has God up to? Look at verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 36. It will sound familiar. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Of the failure of Israel's kings ends with the arrival of another king, the king of Persia, the king ordained by God to save his people. And the fact that they needed a king from Persia to bring salvation is a memorable and stunning rebuke to the sinful failure of Israel and Israel's kings to faithfully serve the Lord. It must have been humiliating for the people of God to know that their only hope of returning to their land and building their temple is to the aid of a Persian king who bailed them out. It's like when your little brother, you know, has to get your hand stuck out of the sink. It's just embarrassing. They were saved by the king of Persia. The salvation of Israel in Ezra 1 and 2 is a stunning reminder that Israel had no king of her own, but there's hope. Look again at Ezra chapter 2, verse 2. Ezra lists the men who led the people back into the land. Do you see the first name in the list, the top of the list? A man by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. He was the great, great grandson of Josiah, one of Israel's few good kings. Before the sermon, I texted the Freemans to see if they wanted to change the name of their son from Ezra to Zerubbabel. The Freemans declined. Turn one more time in your Bibles, this time to Matthew, Chapter 1, verse 12. The Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 1, verse 12. Here we find another list. It's a record of the men in the line of King David. Listen carefully. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. God did save Israel from Babylon through the surprising King Cyrus, but God cares for his people. He holds history in the palm of his hands, and that means he never stopped working on his master plan to deliver his people through a king of their own, a king who would be even more surprising than Cyrus, because though Cyrus reigned from Persia, and that would have been embarrassing to the people of Israel. King Jesus reigns from a Roman cross, and nothing is more scandalous than that. But here is the gospel. Like Israel, we went our own way. We rebelled. We oppressed. We hated. We lusted. We argued. We fought. We turned our back on God in every conceivable way. We found our joy in everything the world has to offer. We were in exile for our sin and deserved to be left there forgotten, ignored, and abandoned. But God, he didn't turn his back. He pursues us from the most surprising of places, a cross where Jesus gave up his life for sinners like you and me. If you're not a Christian, you have only to believe this message, turn from your sins, and you can become a Christian even today. I'd love to talk more with you about that. If you want to do that, do it now. Do it as we pray. Talk to me at the door after the service. You can place your trust in the only king who can forgive you and grant you peace. If you are a Christian, I would just say to you, why are you so downcast? If you are a Christian, why are you so sad? If you are a Christian, why do you live as if you have no hope? I'm not saying all of you do that, but why so many of us? Evidence God cares for us is not found in our checking account or in our car or in our property or in the size of our family. Evidence that God loves us is found in a surprising king who came to us in Calvary and did what no one would ever do for us. Loved us where we were and then changed us into the men and women we now are. And there is joy to be found in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We praise you for Ezra 1 and 2. We pray that we would never forget the fact that you have so perfectly proved your care for your people. You have made it abundantly clear that you hold history in your hand. And you have lifted up the most surprising king in Jesus Christ the Lord of lords, we pray that our hope and our joy, our peace and our happiness would be in him. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.